Thank you, Joseph. You guys can be seated. I'd like to welcome you this morning. And if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 5, and Lord willing. Well, at least this is what happened, has happened in the last two services. We've, we've dealt with the whole chapter. It is going to be a little bit different today than normal. And so I'm going to spend a little bit of time at the beginning and just read the whole thing to you. And I'll kind of pause just to make sure we're all tracking. Um, but I'm not going to necessarily go verse by verse like we typically do. And there's a couple of reasons for that, which you'll see. It'll be pretty obvious here in just a second. Um, but, but it's also a narrative that's really easy to understand. And so I don't think we'll see anything this morning as far as like what's taking place here that, that, that requires a whole lot of explanation. And we should just be able to read it and, and see that. All right, so let's begin. Exodus 5, beginning in verse 1. It says, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let the heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. Now I'm going to pause there for just a second. We're about halfway through just to make sure we're on the same page. So Moses and Aaron have done what the Lord asked them to do for the most part. We'll deal with that primarily in a second. But as they go before Pharaoh and they ask for basically a few days off to go worship um, the Hebrew God in the wilderness. And Pharaoh says, no, which shouldn't surprise us because one, God said that he was going to say no. But two, remember, in the Egyptian culture, Pharaoh is God incarnate. He's God in the flesh. And so you would think that one deity wouldn't be too, um, you know, he wouldn't be too excited about a group of people going to worship another so-called deity. And, and plus, these, these people, particularly the, um, the Hebrews, have served this Egyptian kingdom and regime for the last 400 years. And so he acts like some of the bosses some of you may have had at some point or may currently have or coach. He says he thinks they're being idle. So what does he do? Put it on them some more. Like, you know, that's part of it. But really, friends, the issue here is worship, like, like in allegiance. And that's, I think, what, what, what Pharaoh is most up in arms about is the fact that um, he's the so-called God. He's the Pharaoh. He's the king of Egypt. Um, and, and these people, the ones that are basically running the country as far as the labor force, want to go out in the wilderness and take three days off work to worship another God? Not happening. I'm not doing that. And so he 
he doesn't allow that. And, and, and what he does in response is he adds to their work. And so in making bricks, they would have straw that they would put inside the brick and the mortar and the mud that would help, help them with stability. So the bricks would stick together and they would last longer when there was straw in it. Evidently, there was a storehouse of straw in Egypt. I don't think that the Egyptians were going well out of their way to get straw for the Hebrew people. And I think that's why they say, you got to go find your own straw. And so they had to be scattered out. But if you notice, they had to go look not just for the straw that's freshly cut, but for the stubble that the real straw came from. And so their workload has increased almost double, but they're supposed to make the same amount of bricks in the same amount of time. And so that's, that's what's going on here. And so in verse 13, the taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day as when there was straw. And the foreman, now the foreman here are Hebrews, they're Israelites. And the foreman of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle, you are idle. That is, what you, that is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. And then they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. And this is the word of the Lord. And so, Father, we thank you for your word. God, I thank you for this section of scripture that is honest. I thank you for the transparency of it. God, and as we try to unpack some of the deeper issues that are going on in Exodus chapter 5, um, Father, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, as we reflect on your word, that you would allow us to be honest with ourselves. God, I pray that you would work. I pray that you would open our eyes to blind spots. I pray that you would open our eyes to the need that we have for you in regards to faith and trust, regardless of circumstances around us. And so, Father, I need you to speak this, and the hearers need you to hear this. And so we ask that you come. It's in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so you remember last week. Remember I said, Exodus is like a roller coaster. And last week, we were on the part of the roller coaster that was on the high. There was a little resistance, climb, climb, climb. You get to the top and you look around and everything's beautiful and it's great. And then I don't ride roller coasters. Those of you that do, you know, typically what's coming is this massive drop off, uh, sheer terror, throwing up, screaming, eyes closed, and you drop off and then it, you know, it gets scary again. Well, th well, that's like the book of Exodus. Exodus has these high points, but as soon as it gets good, it gets bad and it gets bad like really, really fast. 
And so last week, the people of God, at least the elders of Israel, have gathered with Moses, uh, Moses and Aaron. They've heard the word of the Lord. They've seen the signs of the Lord. They, they, they bow down and they worship and they celebrate because they say our God has heard our cry. He's seen our affliction and they know that the day of rescue is near or it's at least as near as it's ever been. And there's worship and there's celebration. And then you get to chapter five and you read through it and you go, geez, what happened? It's like this massive cloud of just disappointment just settled over chapter five. There's excitement, there's hope, that, that hope is infused. They're you know, excited about what's gonna happen, what's gonna come. God's going to work and it got harder. A lot harder. I think it's the, we see just the epitome of, of disappointment because I think we all know enough about disappointment to know that you can't be disappointed unless there's a prior hope. Unless there's a prior expectation that something was going to go better or you thought that it was going to be better than it was. I'm sure some of them thought this is not what I had in mind. This is not who I thought God was for me. I thought God was going to save. I thought God was going to rescue. I thought God was going to help. I thought God was going to come alongside of me. I'm sure some of them were like, this literally was not, like this isn't the 20 year vision I had for my life. It got bad quick, friends. It got bad quick. But you can't be disappointed if you don't first hope that something would be different. And, and no one here is exempt from this. And, and this is going to be a hard message for about the first 25 minutes. All right, let me just be upfront with you. Because I want us to take the time to see scripturally what the Bible says about our lives. And to take an honest look at that because disappointment is a part of our lives. No one is exempt from it. All of us have had this kind of vision for our lives and, and this vision for what we think life should be like and how it should work. And when that doesn't happen, what sets in? Somebody say it. Y'all with me? Disappointment. Disappointment shatters our dreams. I don't think that's overstated. It's not evil to have dreams. It's not evil to have this expectation, especially as you're young and you have this expectation of college and marriage and work and being a dad or being a mom and, and all of those things. Those aren't evil in and of themselves, but disappointment, it, it shatters our dreams. It highlights our limitations and our inadequacies. It highlights the limitations and inadequacies of the people that are closest to you. Look, spouses, your spouse is limited and has inadequacies. Charlie, I know you're surprised by that, but, you know, just hang in there. But seriously, parents, your children are limited and have inadequacies. Hey, kids, newsflash, your parents are limited and have inadequacies. Disappointment highlights our limitations and our inadequacies. Disappointment makes us feel desolate. It makes us feel lonely. And, and I believe in God's providence. Exodus 5 is hitting us collectively right where we are because 2020 has been a weird mug okay and at best you might go it really hasn't it's been great family revival things are going good stimulus checks we've been fishing every day i've still been getting like everything's awesome you would at least say it's weird is that fair it's weird but for some people it's been devastating for some people it's been incredibly 
disappointing. And so I think we have, similar to the people of God in Exodus 5, this common experience right now to where collectively we're going through something together that we've never been through. And it feels like, if if it's not on you yet, it feels like, for me personally, and just for us collectively, like there's this cloud of disappointment that could just settle in. Because God's plans... I mean, I'm just going to say it this way. They rarely work the way you think they would. Like, I literally can't think of one thing in my life that has gone the way that I thought it was going to go. Some things are better than I thought. I'll be honest. I'm, I lean more toward the pessimistic, realistic side. So I'm not overly optimistic about things. So I'm surprised on occasion. But for the most part, things have not gone the way that I thought they should go. And so I think there are some things we need to understand in order to take these sort of waves of disappointment so that they don't drown us. And I want to give you a couple of things to consider before we get back to Exodus 5. Um, If we're going to be able to endure God's good and right plan, playing out in ways that are confusing, disorienting, and disappointing, there's two things, at least two. There's way more than two, but two I'm going to give you today that I think we have to consider. And I'm going to read that again. If we're going to consider, I'm sorry, if we're going to be able to endure God's good, right plan, playing out, in our lives, in ways that are confusing, disorienting, and disappointing, there's at least two things to consider, and two we'll consider this morning. The first one is this. Being human means being weak and small. Being human means being weak and small, and and I mean of the best of us. The most powerful the most wise, the richest, the most athletic, the smartest, the greatest musicians, you name it. If you're a human being or any human being that's ever walked or ever lived, this is true of us. We're weak and we're small and we have limitations in every way possible. We must acknowledge that we're not ultimate. God's ultimate. And so again, we're trying to understand and endure God's plan playing out in our lives when it involves disappointment. First step, we're small. We're small. We're not in control. Some of you love being in control. And I'm going to say this, we all do at some capacity. Some of us are just, it's just obvious, right? But, but, but I, don't, I don't really even mean that in a negative way because some of you that like to be in control, you're really good at being in control. You're really smart. You have good ideas. You have good plans. You can articulate a plan. You can cast vision and people listen and people can understand and people follow. But for the most, at some level, we all like this idea of control. We want to be able to, kind, to be the kind of being that can say, I want this and I'm going to get this. Parents, kids, I, I really, I don't want to break your hearts, but I want you to hear the truth today. When parents say, when coaches and parents and teachers say things like, you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it. Like we mean well, but that ain't true. It's not true. You can't, you can't do anything you put your mind to. You know why? Because you're limited. You're small and you're weak and you're a human and you're not ultimate. God is the only one, the only being that exists that can do exactly what he wants to do in the exact way that he wants to do it every single time. God doesn't deal with disappointment. 
It's what it means for him to be ultimate and all-knowing and sovereign. We're not that. And if we're going to be able to deal with disappointment, we have to understand that we have limitations. We're weak. And if we don't understand that and we haven't grasped that, then if that's you, I can relate to this, you're going to be the most disappointed person to ever walk. Because you're going to be constantly coming up with, I'm, I'm sorry, coming against this brick wall of your limitations and your inadequacies. And you might be successful in some things, but other things you're not because you're not ultimate. We're not ultimate. And so we desire to be in control, but we're not. Um, and the reality is we're small. We're very small. And we're in God's hands. And what I want to submit to you before we move on to the next point is that it's such a better way to accept and believe that you're small and in the hands of a God who is brilliantly sovereign and loving and faithful and kind and always gets what he wants. That's a better way. Now, it doesn't mean you might not be disappointed, but in order to keep these waves of disappointment from drowning us, I think we have to understand that being small and in his hands is better. And I think it would help for us to embrace that and submit to that truth. Number two, we must learn what the Bible teaches about this life. Now, I'm going to say it a different way. If you want to jot it down both ways, we must learn what the Bible teaches about this life. But we're going to have to learn to read the scriptures honestly. Not only this age, but nearly every age that we've had a a collection of God's word there have been there's been this temptation to take certain parts of what God says and to pull it outside of its context and to build something around that to build a thought or an agenda or even to try to encourage uh, like like around that and, and that, that causes some danger and it gives us a, a false hope and a false expectation of what this life even is and what to expect from this life and so when things go bad if we haven't read the Bible honestly all right, if we haven't understood what the Bible teaches about this life, then we're going to be disappointed. And even a, like another level of disappointment, because whenever, what, uh, whenever the truth about what we believe about God is shaken, we're shaken to our core. I mean, there's not a scarier moment than to realize that the God that you've believed in is not the one true God. Or something you've believed about God is not true about God. You want to see somebody's claws come out of them get defensive and then ultimately disappointed, then that's somebody that has not read the Bible honestly and come to grips with that. I want to start with John, 3, John 16, 33. And just the first part. I've said these things to you. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Isn't that awesome? Right? That's great. And, and I'm, I'm not poking fun at this because you've seen John 16, on a coffee mug, on a t-shirt, on a bumper sticker, on a little um, mouse pad, you know, the little computer thing they put graphics and stuff on. Like, that's a wonderful promise that Jesus, he's saying these things to you. His words bring peace. But listen, this is John 16, And then you're going to know the second part of John 16, But I feel like you've never seen John 16, the whole thing, like, together. Here's what I mean. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In the world, 
you will have tribulation. That's not soft selling this life. In this world, you will have difficulty, you will cry, you will hurt, you will get sick, people you love will be lost. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. Why? Jesus takes our eyes and our focus to a greater reality. For I have overcome the world. This world isn't ultimate. We're not ultimate. Our experience here is not ultimate. Our tribulation is not ultimate. The seasons of happiness in this life are not ultimate. But in this world, you, you will have trouble. You're going to have peace. His words bring peace. But there's also tribulation. In, in Matthew chapter 11, this is, um, so John the Baptist is in prison. Most of y'all may be familiar with who John the Baptist is. He, he understands himself to be the forerunner for Jesus Christ. And he has been faithful. Later on in John chapter 11, Jesus himself says, there has not been a greater man born than John the Baptist. All right, so y'all following? Like this, like, so if you have a resume and you can put on there, well, Jesus says there's not a greater person that's ever walked on this planet except for him, it's me. I mean, that's a good thing. Well, here he's in prison. And John the Baptist is not in prison because he's being persecuted because he's been faithfully proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus. John the Baptist has been put into prison because he called out Herod for having an adulterous relationship with his brother's wife. Now Herod sees John the Baptist as a righteous person and so he doesn't kill him on the spot, he just puts him in prison. Well then Herod has this weird sexual party to where the daughter of Herodias comes in and does this whatever kind of dance for Herod. Herod likes it so much, he says to the daughter, I'll give you whatever you want. And she says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. I'm going to pause there, and we'll pick back up in just a second. But this is when he's in prison. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And so he's in prison. He hears that Jesus is healing. He's opening the eyes of the blind. Like these, there, there are these miraculous things happening, and he's, he's good with that. And he goes, that's consistent with what I would expect from the Messiah. But why am I in prison? Like he's struggling with the fact that he's in prison, so much so that he looks at these disciples and says, hey, will you please go back to Jesus and just ask him if he's the one? Just, like, like just one more time. Like I'm, I'm pretty sure that the Holy Spirit fell on him when I baptized him in the Jordan. But let's just double check. I mean, because I've been eating locusts and honey and sporting camel fur for a while now. And this isn't exactly what I thought my life would end up being. Look at Jesus' response. Verse 4. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And then it stops. And so as these disciples take this message back to John the Baptist, they almost quote verbatim from Isaiah 35. 
And so John the Baptist knows the scriptures. And so as they come back and they say, the, the blind receive their sight, uh, the, the lame walk, the lepers cleanse. I'm sure he's clapping and he's, he's high-fiving. Like the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. And then it stops because John the Baptist knows what else the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 61. And the captives were set free. And the oppression ceased. But they stopped. They stop. So here's what Jesus is telling John the Baptist. I am the one, and you're going to die in prison. And that night, the executioner goes into John the Baptist's cell, cuts his head off, and brings the forerunner for Jesus, his head on a platter. Does that not just seem so stupid? Like unnecessary? Would that not just be incredibly disappointing? Jeremiah's another one. You all know Jeremiah 29, 11, right? It's on, it's on the coffee mugs. Actually, if you go to our guest bathroom in our house, when you use the bathroom, you will, you will read, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. <laughs> plans to prosper you and to give you a hope and a future. It's right there. It's true, by the way. I'm not saying these things aren't true. I'm just saying it wasn't immediate for Jeremiah. It starts off pretty good in chapter one. There's not one dude in this place that wouldn't take this charge and be able to run through that wall, all right? Verse four, now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak for I am only a youth. That sounds familiar, right? Sounds like Moses. But the Lord said to me, do not say I'm only a youth for to all to whom I send you, you shall go and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Listen to this. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build and to plant. Randy, if that was the message to you, you would, you, you would be able to get up and run right through that wall. If the Lord said, behold, Randy, I've put words in your mouth and set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck down and to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build up and to plant. Let's go. Pep talk. Well, over in chapter 20, when he's about halfway through this mission, he prays to the Lord. It's not going well, just to say the least. Sometime before this prayer, he's been beaten again and thrown in a ditch, left to die. Oh, Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. All right, so, Jonathan, Tony, if somebody prays that at community group tonight, I'm scooting over, okay? COVID's coming, lightning, hornet, uh, murder hornet, however you say, whatever. Like, seriously, think about, the, like, like, this is the prophet Jeremiah. And we just read what we read in chapter 1. Consecrated, set apart, called by God. Oh, Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me, for whenever I speak, I cry out. I shout violence and destruction, for the word of the Lord has become for me, listen, a reproach and derision all day long. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, 
there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. That's another section that you see pulled out, right? Usually communicated in the context of some effective preacher. Oh, the word of God is just a fire in his bones and he can't shut his mouth. Well, that's good and that's powerful, but man, in this context, he just called God a liar. There are no converts. There's not one known convert in Jeremiah's ministry. There is in my heart, as it were, burning fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary with holding it in, and I cannot. Listen, for I hear many whispering, terror is on every side. Denounce him. Let us denounce him. Say all my close friends, watching for my fall. Perhaps he will be deceived. Then we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly shamed, for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord of hosts, who tests the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for you have... I'm sorry, for to you I have committed my cause. Then he praises. Sing to the Lord. Praise to the Lord. For he has delivered the life of the needy from the hand of the evildoers. But it's kind of like that roller coaster. It's real high. I mean, watch this drop off. Cursed be the day on which I was born. The day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. Is this a disappointed fellow? This brother's struggling. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father. A son is born to you making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon because he did not kill me in the womb. So my mother would have been my grave and her womb forever great. Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? He's disappointed. It's not what he thought. And the book ends with him spending 40 years preaching the truth and telling the people of Israel God's word, and they reject it. And it ends with God's people, Jeremiah with them, being led into Babylonian exile and captivity. We don't like Bible stories like this. But we have to read the Bible honestly because it helps us understand and how to deal with when disappointment strikes us. We have to see plainly what the Bible teaches us about this life. It doesn't paint the picture that a lot of Bible preachers and teachers in books and movies paint. You get the Hallmark version. But when you stick to the Word of God, and this is just two examples, actually three counting Exodus chapter 5, of God's people very, very disappointed. So in this passage, back to Exodus 5, we see some things that intensify disappointment. And so again, just for clarity, so, so we stick to where we are. Being human means being weak and small. Again, this is going to help us to endure when these waves of disappointment come. Being human means being weak and small. And we must learn what the Bible teaches about this life. We must learn to read the Bible honestly. That will help us not be overcome with waves of disappointment. Okay? Now, I think in the text, we see some things that intensify disappointment. And, and the first one is found in verse 1 of Exodus 5. And it is incomplete obedience, which essentially is what? 
disobedience. But I wrote it that way because I wanted it to be somewhat provocative and I wanted it to be something that we remember because it's, it's impartial. I mean, he's obedient at some levels, but he's not completely obedient, which as we'll see in a second, is actually disobedient. All right, look at verse one. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, side note, if you're gonna say thus says the Lord, it really needs to be what he said, right? Let my people go. He's still on track that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. What's he doing? What's he doing? And I read scholar after scholar and commentary after commentary this week, and they give our brother Moses the benefit of the doubt. I just can't. And, and I'm not trying to be too hard on the dude. I mean, we know his history, and we're going to see verses 22 and 23 in just a second where he looks at the Lord and says, you have done evil. And so at best, I'll give him this, at best he's just trying to be diplomatic. He's probably like, Lord, um, look, I know we just met and everything, and so you don't really understand this Pharaoh situation in the way that I do. So I'm just going to help you out. I want to see the people freed, and me and Aaron are going to obey, but I can't just go up there. Because look at verse 22 of chapter 4. I'm, I'm going I'm to give you an emphasis here, okay? Then you shall say to Pharaoh. Then you shall say to Pharaoh. Then you shall say to Pharaoh. God is telling Moses, this is what you should say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Evidently, Moses thinks that's a little bit, he, he, he would just be coming in too hot. So God, let me help you. I'm going to say we're going to the wilderness um, you know, to worship you. And in their culture, it is true that if they wanted the bigger thing, they would take baby steps to get to the bigger thing with the little things, but I'm just not buying it, guys. I'm not buying it. It's half-hearted obedience, and it makes disappointment worse. It intensifies the disappointment when we half-heartedly obey, when we try to help the Lord out, right? That's how we justify it. Think about Abraham and Sarah. God had promised them a child. They get up in age, and Sarah's finally like, all right, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Sarah's finally like, look, Abraham, you just go sleep with the maidservant. Do what? Go sleep with Hagar. All right. And he goes and sleeps with her, and they have a baby. See, they desire to see God's plan played out, but they just don't think that God's going to be able to do it in the way that they think he should. And so they try to help him out a little bit. And, and that's the incomplete obedience. It's not complete obedience. But, and, and it's still a desire to see God's plan, but it's just us trying to help him out and not acting in faith and trust and doing exactly what he says and what he calls us to do. And when we do that, it intensifies the disappointment. I don't know if any of you were Marines, but I've heard this from friends, some guys I used to work with all the time. They used to talk about instant willing obedience to orders. And so for Marines, and, and I did some research this week, and so, so for the Marines, and it might be in other branches too, but I know for sure in the Marines, when they go, they would go to boot camp, these, these cadets, like right off the bat, they want to teach them instant willing obedience to orders. And so they do, like, like they're asking them to do like some of this off the wall stuff. And what they want them to do is that young little cocky cadet to go, why? Or pause or delay in any form or fashion. And 
they consider that disobedience. And so then the wrath comes, right? Then the, you know, the drill sergeant comes, comes down on them. But what they're teaching them is the importance of listening to authority and acting appropriately. And whenever somebody in authority commands you to do something in the time of war or battle, if you don't obey instantly and completely, it's dangerous. And it could cost you your life. It could cost your um, fellow soldiers their lives. It could cost a lot of lives. Football coaches say, go full speed and you won't get hurt. Go full speed and you won't get hurt. Like they, they scream that in my ear when I was a football player. I hear them screaming it in football players. What they're after there, what the coach wants you to do and what he wants you to know is he wants you to know if you go full speed, if you go completely every time, it's less dangerous and it's more effective. Spiritually speaking, of course we won't be perfect in this. Of course. And that's not what I'm saying. And God's not a drill sergeant going instant willing obedience to orders. But he is ultimate. And we've already seen that this morning. And he's clearly given commands and he's clearly given Moses words to speak. And Moses just does not obey. And he creates more disappointment and more disappointment. And the reason that is is because disappointment, I'm sorry, disobedience is sin. And sin brings guilt, and sin brings shame. And so not only are you disappointed in the way things are going, but now you have this guilt and shame that's heaped on, and it's just this vicious cycle or this vicious vortex. Something else that intensifies disappointment is when there's more fear than, than faith. And so if, if you see in verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord, but I want you to look at verse 10 of Exodus 5 and see this contrast. What does it say? Thus says Pharaoh. And, and then you have this long discussion and this playing out of, you know, what's right and what's not, what's true and what's not, who the people should serve, who they shouldn't serve. Pharaoh even goes to call either Moses or God himself a liar. And so it just really, it's, it's this battle for who God's people are going to serve. And it's interesting to note here, and, and I think it really applies to our own relationship with the Lord as well, that the, the Hebrew word for slave and worship are the same. They're the same word. They have the same root. They come from the same meaning. And so I want you to, with that in mind, look at verses 15 and 16. Remember the foremen are Israelites. So then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your what? What's that say? Servants or worshipers. Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your people, in your own people. The people are frightened. They're more pressed than they've ever been. They're being more severely beaten. They're frail and they're weak. And who are they now crying to? Pharaoh. We just celebrated at the end of chapter 4 that God has heard our cries. God is acting now in rescue. God has come. They've heard the word of the Lord. They've seen the miraculous signs of the uh, Lord to validate. And they cried to the Lord and they cried to the Lord. And now in this particular situation, there's this massive shift. And they're not crying out to the Lord, but God's people are crying out 
to Pharaoh and even identifying themselves with him as his servants or his worshipers. And so, I mean, there's an application here. How we go about handling our fears shows who we ultimately worship. Where we turn for help is what we hope in. It's really that simple. Where we look and where we turn for help is ultimately where our faith lies. And so when there's fear, where do you go? Lastly, this also intensifies disappointment. Um, We're too quick to forget. We're too quick to forget. There is the only thing more consistent in the scriptures than the forgetfulness of God's people is God's love and God's patience and God's mercy and God's grace. Amen. It's the only thing more consistent than our forgetfulness is his patience, his grace, and his mercy and his love. Look at verse 22 and tell me if you were the Lord what you would do to Moses. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? The audacity. I mean, I probably would have done exactly, even though they didn't have it written out like this, what I, I probably would have done what we did a few minutes ago and said, who are you talking to, man? Chapter 4, verse 22. I told you to go to Pharaoh and say, he has Israel's, um, um, he has my firstborn son. And to tell him to let the firstborn son go, and that if you don't let him go, then I'm going to take your firstborn. That's what I told you to tell him. And then, I mean, I don't know if I would, if I was God, I don't know that I would have made it this far with Moses already anyway. And so that's why I say the only thing more consistent than the forgetfulness of God's people is his patience and his love and his grace and his mercy. And friends, it has to be that way. Or he's not using anybody. But we forget. We forget. I mean, at the first sign of opposition... Moses develops this spiritual amnesia and he forgets. We do that. We're we're the same. At the first sign of opposition or things not going the way that we thought they should go, we forget the billions of times that God has displayed and shown his faithfulness to us. We forget his promises. We forget the sweet moments that the Lord meets with us in, in, in our individual time with Him and the sweet moments that He meets with us in our corporate time with Him. We forget the moment when we came to believe. And we knew in that moment what the Lord had saved us from. We forget. And when we forget, the wave comes in. The wave of disappointment. We feel betrayed. We feel deceived. We feel lied to. And we forget all those moments that God really did sustain us and get us through in the time of crisis. Can we be honest this morning? Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to say anything. I'm not going to make you stand up, read your notes, okay? But are you disappointed? I mean... Are you trying to hang in there? 
and battle through, but you just had this vision of what marriage would be like or what being a mom or a dad would be like or what you know, being a teenager would be like or being a college student would be like or you had this expectation of, of what your church should be like or what your pastor should be like or what your president should be like or what your boss should be like or what your house should be like. I, I mean, I could go on and on and on and on. But, but I, I wonder... I mean, I, I know I mentioned we're like collectively we're all in this weird time, this difficult time, and I feel like there's this cloud of disappointment on top of all the normal disappointments of just living in this life that it could just settle in on us. I, I just wonder if some of us are just disappointed and we're really weary and we're really overwhelmed with it all. We don't really know where to go or where to look. Or what to do. And friends, the way we handle disappointment is no different than the way the Hebrews. I mean, we can do the very things they did and it can intensify. Because you know what? They went to Pharaoh. They, they cried to Pharaoh in their moment of fear, in, the, in their moment of disappointment. And so what I want us to picture is Pharaoh being Satan, Pharaoh being our flesh, Pharaoh being the world. And so whenever we go to the Pharaoh for help and for hope, the only thing that Pharaoh can say, the only thing that he can say is exactly what he said at the end of verse 4, and that's get back to your burdens. There's no chance of rescue. There's no chance of redemption. There's no chance of being freed from your oppression. It's only get back to your burdens. There's zero hope. There's zero help. And all it will do is the disappointment will just continue to heap and heap and heap. And the, and the frightful thing is, is that sometimes these moments when we go to Pharaoh or we go to Satan or we go to the world, is there, there's these season where it, um, seasons where it satisfies. And, and we're deceived and we're lied to. But all it's ultimately saying is get back to your burdens. Get back to your work. There's no chance of rescue. And it just heaps this burden and this weight and this guilt and this shame. And if the Lord's willing, we see it. But that's what Pharaoh offers. And if you're a believer or not, I don't know where you are today, but if you are just struggling in this life, and I want you to understand, even if you're not struggling, what the world offers you is more burden. That's it. I mean, sin, that's why the Bible describes it as slavery. You keep going after it and there always has to be more. You keep going after it and there has to be more. You keep going after it and sin wants to destroy. It's not playing around. It has one goal and one goal only for the individuals that it affects and it is to destroy. But then you have Jesus. Pharaoh says, get back to your burdens. Then you have the God of Israel, and the God of Israel who was made manifest in the flesh through his son, Jesus Christ, who says, come to me, sinner. All of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you more work. No. What? Rest. Pharaoh, get back to your burdens, and you're going to be enslaved as long as it's up to me. Jesus, come to me, and receive rescue and rest. It's a no-brainer. 
Why would one of us sit in a seat this morning or one of us listen online and not just wholeheartedly throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus? Why? There's no reason not to. The way of the world, work, burden, disappointment. Christ offers rest and rescue. Would you come to him? Please. Let's pray. Father, Exodus 5, for me personally, was one of the most explicit, beautiful pictures of your gospel that I've seen in a while. It's so plain. When we come to you in faith, there's, there's hope and there's rest. It doesn't mean it's easy, but there's, there's hope and there's a future and there's grace and there's mercy. When we don't go to you, there's the exact opposite of all of those things eternally and forever and so Lord I know I can't save one soul in this place I can't even save my own but Father if there's someone listening or someone that's here that doesn't know you I beg you that through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would open their eyes and unlock their ears and ultimately what that is it's a release from the prison of slavery would you save, Lord? For the believer in this room, Lord, that may be struggling with disappointment and just trying to really understand things, Lord, would you help us to continue to remember and, and, and not forget your goodness and not forget your mercy and to read the Bible honestly and to always remember our place in this whole universe as we're weak and we're really small. And let us see as the better way that we are in your hands. Father, I think you're the only one that can really protect us from disappointing setting in. You're the only one that can ensure our obedience. And so, God, we're just, we're just expressing right now how much we got to have you and we need you. I pray this in Jesus' name.